rugby fans enjoying a celebration game against the Barbarians. Next stop, it's the Six Nations. Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. We'll hear all about the founding father of the Welsh Rugby Union. That could be, well, keep listening. And we'll find out why the Quirk family of Pontaclean were guests of honour of the WIU at the Wales Barbarians game. And that game's where we'll start. It was a first taste of Wales action for props Lloyd Fairbrother and Harry O'Connor. The last taste of rugby at the Principality Stadium for three terrific players for Wales. We are there, Justin Tuckett and Aaron Jones. And the last time Wales will play before the Six Nations. So, what did Warren Gatlin think of the future prospects on the back of that performance? I think to score 49 points, you've got to be pretty happy. You probably missed a given sort of the age profile of the team. I know we had some, some experience out there. I was really pleased with a lot of aspects of the scrimmage well. The line that was outstanding today. Yeah, a lot of positives, but we're pretty excited about some of the youngsters coming through. And we've, You've got to be patient with them. You've got to go through a little bit of pain. And we've tended to... Probably the symmetry between the regions and us hasn't been always the same. And unfortunately, we've probably used the national team as almost like a pathway that we've developed some of those players through playing international rugby because of necessity and we've had a weakness in a few positions. So, um, and then because they end up playing international rugby and doing well, then they go back and then they start for their regions. We've kind of sometimes got that wrong. So it's just making sure that we work together as the regions and the national team working together in terms of where we've got holes and, you know, developing players and, you know, I think foreign players are really good for the game, and particularly here in Wales. But I've always said, you know, we need to get world-class foreign players, and if we've got to pay a lot of money for them, uh, we should do that. And unfortunately, what we've tended to do is we've been tended to get middle of the road journeymen, sort of 27, 28, or even a little bit older, and and unfortunately stopped the development of some of the youngsters. And well, I think for the regions and for us, we you know we need to get it right, and we know the financial situation. We need we will go through a little bit of pain from a national setup. They need to go through some pain, but now's the right time, you know, to do that, and then think, you know, what's what could the picture look like in a couple of years? So, you know, we've been looking at some some youngsters and excited about some of the young boys coming through, but I said it's just going to take a little bit of time. Be happen to try seven tackles. How much you've been missing? I don't think he gets a lot of credit for. How good he is defensively, a great tackle. He's always been fantastic in those wide breakdowns. And you know, we talked about leaving him on for 80 minutes, but then there was an opportunity to, to bring him off. And um, the reception and the ovation he got from the crowd was a testament to him, not just as a rugby player, but also to him as a person. The ovation for Alan Jones and Justin Tipperick as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so for the three of them to have that game, I think at least cool time, and for the other two to play. You know, again, here in the stadium, it was incredibly special, and I thought the crowd were amazing in terms of recognising that as well. And to play well today caused us a few problems at the breakdown and stuff. And uh, I said to him afterwards, and he said, "I still there's still a little bit of life in the the old boy yet." You know, and, and Al as well. So um, you know, it was an entertaining game, and in fairness to them, they put us under some pressure as well. And like I said, I was pleased with the composure and. Just seeing the development of the of a number of the youngsters and seeing that progression in them, which is for me was really pleasing. Uh, like that, the Harry O'Connor, first outings for Wales. 
they didn't come in until late in the week and I thought they were great. Um, we've had one real crack at them at scrum time and you know, considering who they're up against, you know, in terms of Joe Moody, he's been an outstanding All Black and um, Tania uh, Tupo as well, you know, obviously renowned as a ball carrier and a scrummager. So uh, they should be pretty proud of themselves and have been brilliant in the last few days in terms of the way they've fitted in and had to... Um, you know, learn all the calls and the line-out stuff and things. So I just said to Lloyd before I came in here, um, you know, well done, and I thought you did a really good job when you were on for us. So, you know, he's still only 31, so and I know the boys do speak highly of him as, as a scrummager, and so, yeah, I was pleased. But the players weren't the only people to visit the dressing rooms and enjoy an Access All Areas Day at the Principality Stadium on Saturday. To explain it, we need to go back to Ponteclean Rugby Club holding their first fireworks display for four years under the supervision of Jake Quirk. To help sell tickets, his daughters did a social media video, which was picked up by the WRU's head of places, Angharad Collins, as an innovative example for all clubs. I'll let the girls take up the story about why they were in the media room at the Principality Stadium before the game last Saturday. I'm glad. And it's... Um and we did a video on social media um, helping our dad to plan the RFC firework display. I'm Erin and we're here because we filmed a video to help sell the tickets for the Ponteclean RFC fireworks display. And you sold all the tickets, didn't you? Yeah. What do you think of the stadium? Is this your first time here? Well, we've been to a normal game before, but we haven't been, like, here. I have. Um, I sang with one of the choirs that sang at halftime. Um, so I've been around some places, but I haven't been like all of it. What do you think? It's very big. <laughs> big. So it's a nice reward for someone to have seen the video and thought, oh, that deserves being picked up on and, and getting something in return. Yeah. That'd be good. It should be a good game, shouldn't it? I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, I'll move on to Dad. Just uh, explain what happened at Ponteclean and why you got the girls involved. So I'm in charge of um, organising the display at Ponteclean RFC. So I was in the midst of designing the display and the girls were giving me a hand. So we just thought we'd have a little bit of fun and try and help uh, push some more tickets for the club. So it's a really good community event as well. So we decided to do a video. The, the girls put the script together, did some filming and yeah, away we went. And the club used it on their social media platforms and it got a really, really good response. And then, yeah, very luckily the, the next day we had a, a phone call from uh, from the media team here at the WRU saying that they were very impressed with what they'd seen and that they'd like to give the girls uh, an opportunity to see how it all works out here in the real, real media world and get an idea of what's involved to hopefully encourage their uh, early start in media and just really help them to hopefully, you never know, they might end up in a career in media. So this might be the spark that moves them in that direction. I probably should explain, we're in the media room, which is underneath the, uh, the west stand of the Principality Stadium. So you are surrounded by working journalists. Is this where you'd like to be more often? Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone in this room has sold out a fireworks display, so you're one up and everybody here already. What do you think of that? Cool. <laughs> and just explain the Ponteclean fireworks. How many people were there? How important is it for the club as a community event? So we had a um, thousand tickets, um, so we had a thousand people there. It's the first display we've done in four years, um, obviously due to um, the shutdown due to COVID. 
Um, so it was a case of uh, getting everything back on track and getting the team back together, <laughs> the band back together, if you want to say that. Um, and again, starting from scratch and, and rebuilding the, the display. So it's uh, all volunteers within the rugby club. It's a really, really good community event. We do it in conjunction with our local community council as well. It's just a really nice event for um, the kids. You know, somebody said to me the other day, actually, which which I hadn't sort of realised, was that that might well be the first fireworks display that many uh, younger children have seen, which kind of put uh, uh, quite a big, uh, little bit of pressure to make sure it went well. But it, it's just a great night. It's one of our busiest nights of the year for the club. And it's a really good family event. So you see all of the kids. We, we try to, the firers certainly go over. We try to interact with the kids because we're all in our PPE, our helmets and high-vis and whatnot. So uh, the, the kids love to see that. And yeah, it's, it's just a really nice event for everybody to come together. We do a, an in-memorial rocket to start with as well for um, those that have uh, passed away in, in the recent years as well, which is always a, a really nice touch just as uh, the club and the local community coming together and remembering um, those of the past as well so yeah I mean I've been doing it for 12 odd years now and uh, it's hard work but uh, you certainly get a really good sense of well-being afterwards just seeing the smile on the kids faces and um, seeing everybody enjoying themselves. Great well congratulations this sounds a fantastic (laughs) event and congratulations girls and helping to sell it out and I hope you all enjoy your day here at the Principality Stadium. listening to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. So they had a great day. Look on the Ponteclean Rugby Club Facebook page to see just where they got in the stadium. Now at another event this week, the founding father of the Welsh Rugby Union was inducted into the Welsh Sports Hall of Fame. Who was he? What did he do? I'll let Peter Jackson explain. Well, as a trustee of the Hall of Fame, we are always conscious of so many people who've done great things for Welsh sport and they haven't been recognised, they haven't been inducted. So, you know, we're slowly catching up with all those who've done great things in the past and who should be remembered and we should cherish what they did and recognise them in some way. So although this is, what, more than 100 years after Richard Mullock's passing, it's wonderful, better late than never, to have him in the Welsh Sports Hall of Fame. So perhaps in future, people might say, Richard Mullock, oh, who was he? And he was the founding father of the Welsh Rugby Union. That's who he was. Pretty important. Very important. Just explain how he justifies that title. Well, he was an extraordinarily gifted man in terms of being able to organise clubs, uh, competitions. And this was at a time, he was born in 1851, so as a young man in his 20s, in the 1870s, you had the growth of sort of football and rugby clubs. And his family were in the printing business in Newport. And in next to no time, he'd become the driving force behind Newport Rugby Club. He was also involved with Newport Athletic Club. And shortly after its formation, That led to the foundation of the three A's, the Amateur Athletics Association. Again, young Mullock was a driving force in that. And the Welsh Rugby Union had not been formed at that time. So the organised sort of rugby, such as it was, was the responsibility of the South Wales Football Union. And Mullock, who came 
from an Anglo-Irish family. I don't quite know how they arrived in Newport. I, I don't think he'd any great pretense to have been a player. I don't, perhaps he, he never even played the game, but he obviously knew a lot about it. And he was friendly with a lot of the top players, and he came up with the idea of forming an international team to play England. And the match would take place in the winter of 1881. At that stage, England had played, gone nine years, and had beaten everybody in sight. So it was a huge, a huge step up for those players. Mullock picked them. He promoted the game himself, picked the team. Big Five hadn't been invented in those days. He, he was responsible for the whole lot. And he wanted as his captain, a chap called Charles Lewis, who was the fullback at Llandovery. And he talked it over with Charles, and Charles thought, I don't really like the look of this team. He didn't think it was truly representative of Wales. And he thought, not to put too fine a point on it, this team's going to get stuffed. And that's exactly what happened. They lost by seven goals, one goal, which is presumably a field goal, and six tries. So it added up, I think, in, in, in currency scoring system, something like 82-0. It was a serious defeat. There was no sort of formal scoring system in those days. It led to a public outcry. I mean, people think that fans get upset now, but listen, there's nothing new under the sun. It was happening almost 150 years ago. Western Mail were saying, was this Richard Mullock's private team? Or, or was this a South Wales Football Union team? And the South Wales Football Union, of course, uh, denied any responsibility. You know, we wouldn't have touched the team that Mullock picked with the proverbial barge pole. All that politicking led to the creation of the Welsh Rugby Union three weeks after the humiliation at Mr Richardson's Field in Blackheath. And in fact, to add insult to injury, the Rugby Football Union turned around and they said, well, look, you know, it's, it's been fun playing you chaps, but you're not really good enough. So they removed Wales from the list of full international fixtures the following season, sent down a North of England team whom Wales beat. And then they thought, ah, well, maybe these Welsh chaps are pretty competitive after all. But by then, the Welsh Rugby Union had been formed on the Castle Hotel in Neath, March the 12th, 1881. And who was the first honorary secretary? Richard Mullock. Who was the first honorary treasurer? Richard Mullock. And from what I can gather, he was hopeless with figures. Didn't have a clue about financial matters. And that ultimately led to his downfall. But before that happened, he made quite a mark on the international scene. I mean, there was never any question of him being anywhere near good enough to play for Wales. But he got on the field as what they called in those days an umpire which I presume were the touch judges, assistant referees as we know them today. And uh, when Wales played, made their debut at Lansdowne Road in 1882, apparently Mullock's decision-making from the line, <laughs> which must have been stealing an awful lot of yardage from the Irish, uh, led to untold disputes. Ireland lost two players through injury. And two others walked off in protest. Now, can you imagine that? You know, two players in an international rugby game. I think this referee's biased or this umpire's biased. Therefore, I'm going to walk off. But Ireland finished with 11 players. Wales won, I think, 24-0 under, under today's values. So, yeah, he was, uh, he was a colourful character, put it that way. <laughs> 
And he formed the team, got a lot of criticism, but stayed a key part of the the Welsh Rugby Union for quite a long time. How long was he involved in positions of power and what happened to, to finish his career at the Welsh Rugby Union? Yeah, he, he was one of the longest serving secretaries of the union. I mean, he went from formation in 82 until almost 10 years. His running of the treasury left something to be desired, a lot to be desired, and even that's a gross understatement. And at successive AGMs, questions were asked as to whether he was fit to run it. There was one year, I think, when the union made a profit of, or union's gross receipts for the year were 96 pounds, and their gross expenditure was 215. So questions were asked, well, how have we come to spend two and a half times more than we've actually uh, had in? And it was discovered, I think, hotel bills, that sort of fairly lavish entertainment to try and impress visiting members of the rugby football union from presumably what was then Twickenham. And that didn't go down very well. But, but I mean, astonishingly, Mullock survived as treasurer despite failing to present a report for six consecutive years. Now, that beggars belief. Hang on, you know, Mr. Treasurer, you haven't given us a proper financial statement for six years. Uh, and in the end, they simply got fed up and they said, look, you, you know, your position is no longer tenable. He resigned, but even then, he carried on as secretary for probably about another 18 months, finally finishing with the union in 1892, by which time he was only 41. And the following year, in the county court in Cardiff, he was declared bankrupt. Went to London, got a job there as, uh, as a clerk at a printing company. Still retained links. I mean, he, he produced the brochure for the testimonial match for the prototype superstar of rugby union, Arthur Monkey Gould. He did that, and he was also involved in sort of working for the nationalized Steadford. But he's become largely a forgotten figure. I mean, you, you can say what you like about Richard Mullock, and a lot of people obviously did, and... Um, he played fast and loose with the finances of the union. There was never any question that he was lining his own pockets, but he just wasn't very, very good at, at getting his figures in a row. But there's no disputing the fact that he is, will forever be, the founding father of the Welsh Rugby Union. So we're talking just after Wales have played the Barbarians, 50-plus thousand at the stadium, quarter-finalists in the World Cup, the women playing in the elite WXV. It's a million miles away from those early days where he's scratching around trying to find 15 players. Why is it important to remember the people at the beginning when we're looking back from where we are now? Because if there hadn't been a beginning, maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. And I think we should always treasure the people who've gone before, if only to appreciate what they did, perhaps to look critically and say, well, it might have been better if he or she had done that. Mullet also was a visionary because... You had to be in the late 1870s to say, I think we can get a Wales team to play England at this rugger, you know, and uh, we'll have a go. And the fact that he did it himself, I mean, he must have had immense powers of persuasion for people to say, yeah, of course, Richard, you're the man. Yeah, you can pick the best team. And then, of course, when you lose by 82-0 to England, of all people, then the mucky stuff hits the fan and, and all of a sudden people don't want to know you. Yeah, I mean, anybody, I think, who 
piloted Welsh rugby through those early days of well, where everything was a new frontier. You didn't know what was on the other side. We all take it for granted now. But they were the people who started it. And look at it now. Mullock would probably have said one or two things, I don't believe it. Or I told you. I told you we'd make a lot of money out of this. <laughs> That's what he would have said. <laughs> He's ahead of his time. And I suppose you also look at it, 1871, 1872, England plays Scotland, Ireland got involved. There was a risk in both football and rugby of Wales actually being bypassed, of not existing. It needed the Mullocks of this world and equivalents in football to come forward and say, no, Wales need to be part of this. Yeah. And, and even then he didn't have it easy because they lost the first game by such a landslide. And that would have been a devastating blow. I mean, not only have we lost the game, but we've now been told that we're, we're not worth playing England. And likewise, issues with Ireland. Uh, Ireland were so incensed. So Ireland refused to play Wales and said to any player, well, if you want to go over there and form another team, you certainly won't be getting any caps and you have to pay your own way. So in a very short space of time, England had demoted Wales to, at best, being only fit to play part of England, i.e. the North. And then Ireland was saying, well, well no, we're not, we're not going to play you. So it was only Scotland who didn't find any objection. But to have overcome those hurdles, to have realised at the very beginning that this wasn't going to be easy, I mean, that took a bit of doing. Because a lesser man than Mullock would have sort of thrown his toys out of the pram and said, OK, I'm off, somebody else's turn now. But he didn't, he stuck at it. And Wales fairly rapidly began to win games. They won that game in Dublin 24-0. So they could probably turn around and say, well, the Irish don't want to play us because we beat them. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's important that these people are recognised, that we don't just don't, uh, oh, well, that was, you know, 1870, what did they know then? But there are parallels sounds quite a character. So that's it from this week's Block Rugby Union podcast. Much more next week, of course. But until then, goodbye.